You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the podcast. Today on Drinks with Johnny, I have a chat with famed former drummer of Dream Theater, Mr. Mike Portnoy. We talked about everything from his childhood growing up in Long Island to going to School of Music in Berkeley and Boston, his run with us in Avenged Sevenfold, and much, much more. So without further ado, I bring you Mr. Mike Portnoy. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? I am Johnny Christ, and you are listening to Drinks with Johnny. I have a very special episode here for you today, because via Skype, my very first Skype guest, Mr. Mike fucking Portnoy. How you doing today, man? Yeah! All the way I'm from Pennsylvania. How's, how's the weather out there? It's fucking beautiful, actually. It's a beautiful day. It's, uh, as soon as we get off the, off the phone, I'm going to head out there and take my dog for a walk, and yeah, it's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, early in the morning here, so I'm, I, I got a cup of coffee today. Uh, what are you drinking over there? Uh, yeah, I'm drinking my coffee, man. I'm, I'm just waking up over here, so I'm like having my Starbucks and uh, get you know. Starbucks in the cup. I got, I got my uh, Nespresso, whatever, uh, fucking caramelizzito or oh, whatever. Fancy, fancy. Yeah, I'm a well, fancy guy. I got my, I got my, got my <laughs> shit. Well, at least I'm drinking Starbucks. Here in Pennsylvania, everybody drinks Dunkin' Donuts. Like, fuck oh, that. Oh, really? Shit. That's yeah. that's not the case over here. I think there's like one Dunkin' Donuts out here. Yeah, it's definitely it's all East Coast. Yeah, fucking yeah. weird. Yeah. So, anyways, let's get into it, man. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad I could break your Skype virginity, man. I know. <laughs> I had to. I had to get this all set up this morning. I never fucking had this shit all set up this way. This is the yeah. first time. So I'm like, all right, let's go for it. Well, now that, now the world is your oyster. You could interview anybody at any time. Man. I know, right? It's gonna yeah, it's gonna probably. open up all these worlds. I still won't probably do it, but I I could. <laughs> well, I still want to come to your place and, and hang at the bar and just have a good time. So yeah, this, we'll definitely this, do that again. Yeah, I feel bad that I can't be there with you, but at least we're doing it this way. It's yeah. all good. Yeah, it's all it's all good. We're we're still getting to see each other. I can still see your face. It's like you're here. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. So man, I wanted to just start out, you know, and get to know. Everything about Mike Portnoy. I mean, we were on the road together and everything like that. So I, I, I feel like I know a fair amount of this of the of these questions I'm going to be asking you. But right. um, let's start out with uh, you know growing up in Long Island. What was that like for you? You know your your childhood, your your family. Um, when you first fell in love with the drums, that kind of shit. What, what right. can you tell me about all that? Well, I was born 420. 1967. So uh, I'm a 420 boy. Wait a minute. Okay, so that's why you have Mike Portnoy 420 on your on your fucking on your thing. Yeah, it's every, <laughs> my drumsticks are 420. Everything of yeah, and everyone thinks I'm a stoner, but it's really that's my birthday. I was yeah. born April 20th. I thought I was like, what the fuck? I know you don't smoke weed. What the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, me and Adolf Hitler were both 420 boys. He was born wow. on April 20th too. Yeah, in good company. Yeah, all the best <laughs> kids were born on April 20th. Man. It's awesome. <laughs> Shit, man. <laughs> but yeah, so I was born uh, 67. So uh, I came out the summer of love, pretty much, and uh, 
Long Island, New York, man. It was, you know, it was, it was good time. You know, I, I grew up with uh, all the typical late sixties, early seventies stuff, watching Saturday morning cartoons and HR puff and stuff. And all the, you know, grew up listening to the Beatles and the who and Zeppelin and the stones, all that late sixties stuff. And, uh, eventually just, uh, migrated towards music. I guess my, my dad was a, a, a disc jockey uh, on the radio in the early seventies. And he introduced me to all that music, you know, all that classic rock stuff. So I was immediately surrounded by it. So I knew I would eventually become a musician and I started playing piano. Uh, but okay, it just so you wasn't. started with the piano. You didn't go straight to the drums. Yeah, I was on piano, but it just wasn't rock and roll enough for me. I needed to like hit things. I just had like, you know, energy and, and I was always hyper. So I ended up, <laughs> ended eventually getting a drum kit and, uh, you what know, was your first drum kit. Do you remember? It was just a little Mickey mouse kit, you know, just a silly Mickey mouse, you know, play kit, toy kit or whatever. And, uh, and then it wasn't, I didn't get my first real drum kit till I was about 10 or 11. Uh, I went and visited, I was visiting family down in Florida and they had a, like a real drum kit in the garage. And the whole time I was visiting them, they couldn't peel me off the drum kit. So at that point, my family knew they wanted to get me a real kit. And for my 11th birthday, um, I got my first real drum set and it's weird, man, because my grandfather was the one that bought it for me and he actually had a heart attack that day and ended up wow. passing away from it. So like, that was kind of like his, you know, his like parting gift to me. It was Whoa, really shit. Well, then you had to, you had no choice at that point. It was crazy timing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah at that point I was committed. I had to like, you know, fulfill his, his legacy. So, yeah. And at that point it was, you know, mid to late seventies. And I was listening to a lot of kiss and stuff like that kiss. And later on came like the Ramones and the sex pistols and stuff like that. So I kind of grew up, you know, the first 10 years of my life playing classic rock and punk rock and, you know, early heavy metal stuff like uh, kiss and Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. I didn't really discover the progressive stuff till later. And I got more serious as a, like a, a, a mid teen. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, okay, so you touched upon a little bit of uh, your dad, Howard Portnoy, being a DJ, right? Yeah. How, so, yeah. You, so you grew up and you already had a, a, a celebrity in the house, right? Yeah, he, he, was a, he's a, he was a crazy guy that did so many different things through his life. He, was, he made a movie, he wrote a book, he was a DJ for a few years. Wow. Uh, when I was born, he was making a movie. He was hanging around in the New York scene with like Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma uh, Robert De Niro, they were all starting out too. Like, uh, Scorsese and De Palma were making their first films and my dad was friends with them and he was making his first film. Obviously they went on to be, you know, fucking legends yeah. and my dad's film never got released. So he just went from, <laughs> from gig to gig to gig. Yeah. And but you here's what the, the movie was about. I'm curious. What was that movie about? It was, it was a movie called Felicia and it was just like a trippy art film. Like it wasn't until I, you know, was in my twenties and smoking pot and stuff, and that I was able to even watch it and yeah. appreciate it. But it was just—it was a, re- a really trippy film that never got released. But that's awesome. So, but here's the craziest thing: how my dad became a disc jockey. He, uh, him, and my mom got divorced when I was a kid, so he wanted to leave New York, and he saw the movie "Play Misty for Me" with Clint Eastwood. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was a movie uh, no, that came not around. Familiar. Around 71, it's a movie about a disc jockey on a radio station in Carmel, California, disc jockeying at this station called KRML, and this chick becomes obsessed with him. It's kind of like a fatal attraction kind of story. This chick gets obsessed with him and ends up like trying to kill him. But anyway, my dad saw the movie and fell in love with the looks and the scenery of Carmel, California, 
and was like, man, that looks like a great gig, being a disc jockey at KRML Radio in Carmel. So my dad literally picked up, left New York, drove to Carmel, and got a gig at that radio station, like literally doing exactly what Clint Easter was in the movie. That's fucking hilarious. That yeah. actually brings me, so you followed him out to California, though, right? No, he, he, I stayed in New York uh, with my mom and, and her, uh, her new husband, and I would basically just see my dad like a couple times a year. I'd go out for the summer and stuff. And then I would uh, actually go and do the radio show with him. Uh, like he would do the morning show and he'd let me go and pick the re- pick the tunes and stuff. And uh, like even rad. talk on the radio station with him. Like my first taste of fame was when I was around five, six years old from doing the radio show with him. I, I called up uh, the operator to place a collect call. And I was like, oh, you know, collect call from Mike. And the operator was like, are you Mike Portnoy? I was like a little five-year-old kid, but she knew, me, she knew me from the radio show. So I, yeah. I never realized you're a childhood star. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it explains yeah. a lot, Mike. It explains a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> and my dad would let me pick weird shit. He'd let me take over, and like I'd be playing like Cheech and Chong records and shit like that. Like, oh, dude, on the that's morning awesome. show. I actually yeah. have some of those records, believe it or not. Oh, totally, man. That shit was great. Speaking of uh, collections and records, dude, I'm, I'm looking at all this shit in the back. I've actually been to your house, so I've, I've seen all this before, but a lot of people at home don't know that you got, a, you got oh, quite yeah. the uh, collection around your drum kit there. I mean, look at all those fucking albums you got over there. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I mean, you were here, you know, I guess 10 years ago or so, nine, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty crazy then, but it just keeps growing and growing. That's, I don't know if I had that drum room. No, back you there. did not have that drum room back there the last time I, I was there. That is fucking nice, man. I literally have five kits in that drum room, and, I'm, and actually, actually, I have my Avenge kit from uh, the European tour we did. That kit is in there, and it's mic'd up, and I actually use that to record on sometimes. Oh, so. shit. Yeah, so the, the, two metal, the two Metal Allegiance albums were recorded right there on that kit with the with the Death Bats on them. Fucking A. Yeah. Honor. Honor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so some history on that kit, for That's sure. That's fucking cool, man. Yeah, yeah. so one of the... Fr- I, 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 I'm going to pull away here from uh, our conversation here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little sideways here for a second. But uh, one of the first times we were hanging out and we were over at your house in PA... Uh, that's when I learned that you are pretty much an encyclopedia of fucking music. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you, you cannot stump this guy. Like, you, you can bring <laughs> up any fucking random fucking B track on any record, and he knows it. It's fucking yeah. incredible. It's, it's because of, I grew up with it. Like I said, like my dad, like literally from day one, I was literally spinning Beatles records when I was like two months old and collecting. And by the time I was like five, six years old, I had like hundreds of records, and I just became a, an obsessive kind of guy you know just obsessing over all that shit so yeah that's and it's, mean, and it's, it's, not, it's always it's, it's always been crazy movies too like you've been in my theater and yeah. stuff like that. thousands of blu-rays and shit like that so well, yeah you already men- we've, we've only been talking for about five minutes you already mentioned a movie that i never fucking heard of so let's let, <laughs> go from there <laughs> oh man all right so there's another thing that i um you, you mentioned you were living with your mom and stuff and uh there's no easy way to segue into this but uh uh, she was taken from you uh, uh, early on, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was, um, well, she raised me and my, uh, after I was born, she had uh, my brother and my sister with, with uh, her second husband, and she raised the three of us. And uh, when I was 17, she got into a freak plane crash. Um, completely, you know, it was just completely devastating and shocking and um, yeah, I was 17 and my, my brother and my sister are a few years younger than me. So, uh, 
it was devastating. We were basically, um, uh, well, there's a crazy story. I guess I'll, get, I'll tell you the yeah. story if you, if you want a, a minute. Yeah, divulge, man. Let's, let's get into it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, a crazy, crazy coincidence. That afternoon before the accident in, in school, my health teacher was giving a class about carpe diem and like seize the day and well actually shit you know about it because you guys got that song as well yeah exactly but i ended up writing a song uh with carpe diem as well uh as a result of this but the teacher was giving this class about how to appreciate life and you never know what might happen life changes at the the drop of a dime and appreciate the people you have in your life you know you never know when they're going to be gone so he gives this like totally heavy heavy like uh lesson in class and that day and I go home that night, and my mom's getting ready to go out to go to Atlantic City on a private plane with her boyfriend. It was just a private plane with four people. And she was getting ready to go on the to the, to the airport. I was getting, going out with my friends, and I was just about to run out. And then I turned around, and I remembered this lesson. I turned around and went back to my mom and gave her a big hug and a kiss and said, I just want you to know I love you. And she was like, wow, what you know? What the hell is that? Where'd that come from? And I've never done something like that. But it was because of that lesson, I, the Carpe Diem lesson I got that day, that I had this final goodbye with my mom. And I left, Holy went shit. out with my friends. She gets on the plane, and the plane crashed right off the shore of, of Atlantic City and you know, never saw her again. But I had that moment, and that yeah, like yeah, changed silver, life. I guess silver lining there. I guess of of some sort. You know, you were able to so say I, goodbye. I tattooed Carpe Diem on my arm, and I wrote the song "A Change of Seasons" with Dream Theater, which told that whole story. And yeah, it was a, it was a, quite a heavy thing for a seventeen year old kid to uh, to adjust to. You know, losing your mom so unexpectedly like that. But uh, it's such an early age too. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's. I mean. Uh, everyone's she was still with some loss but like I, I mean you were only 17 though you know and like and she, yeah I mean well it, it it you know between that and going through all the divorces and stuff before that you know both my my, my mom getting remarried and my dad getting remarried so I, I pretty much grew up pretty quickly I had to learn about life yeah pretty early on you know yeah. I, so, I can yeah. see that well, let's get back to a little bit of uh Mike Portnoy early on um you were actually in a couple of bands before dream theater is that correct yeah you know just typical high school shit um my first band was called intruder and it was typical you know when you're in junior high school and 15 16 years old you start playing your instrument you want to jam with other guys so like a garage band kind of shit right exactly we were we were we would play like the local church and stuff like that and we were doing like van halen covers and motley Crue and ozzy and halen in the church i love it yeah well, we, were for teaching. Church. we were playing, you know, like <laughs> Mr. Crowley and stuff like that at St. Mary's Church. It was awesome. That's fucking rad. Yeah. So, I mean, I cut my teeth on that, like doing learning covers and stuff like that and having fun. And then I formed my first band of originals, this band Rising Power. And you can still find that stuff on YouTube. We, we did some demos and stuff and it's out there. Oh, you definitely get, we definitely got to check that out. That's fucking Yeah, awesome. Rising Power and then Inner Sanctum was my first metal band. Inner Sanctum was more like in the vein of like, Motorhead and uh, early Sabbath and early Priest and Maiden and stuff like that because it was the that it was a cool. yeah it was early eighties the thrash scene was just coming around so I started getting into that the thing was I had like this crazy taste of all different styles man I loved everything from punk to classic rock to to thrash metal and then I graduated high school and went off to Berkeley. And I also was a big prog fan. I was a big fan of like Rush. Like Neil Peart was like my fucking hero. And I wanted to learn about like 
playing giant drum kits and odd time signatures. So when I went off to Berkeley, I met John Petrucci and John Myung, and we put together the band that became Dream Theater. But, you know, that whole progressive direction was only just one style of what I liked. I could have went off to Berkeley and met some guys that were Sex Pistols fans or Ramones fans and has, could have just as easily gone in that direction or, or guys that were into playing like Cream and Hendrix and The Doors, and I could have went in that direction. I just... Yeah. Loved so many different kinds of music that we I have, just we have that in common. Actually, we both have a very eclectic taste. I, I yeah, that. yeah. That's that's the key to the key to like music is that that's variety is the spice of music, man. Absolutely, and I'm still like that to this day. I mean, now post Dream Theater, I have all these different fucking bands going in a million different directions yeah. because they're all a part of me. Like I kind of kind of got known for being the prog guy because of Dream Theater, but that was always just like one side of me. Totally. Well, let's get into that one side, though. You kind of you kind of uh, grazed over it a little bit here. You went off to Berkeley School of Music in Boston, and that's where you met John and John. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, and what were your first impressions like? What, how did you guys meet? When we're like, I mean, like, obviously you're at the school, but like, what was that first encounter like? Or do you have any memories of like what yeah. these guys were at that age? You I know, like, remember. I remember the specific day we met, and and we got lucky because we met real quick. We met, I think, maybe the second week of school, like September '85, and uh, that's when Little Johnny Christ was about a year. Oh, dude! Look, no, no, no. I, I was yeah. I was I was November '84. So yes, I know that. And actually, the story I just told about my mom dying in a plane crash—that was the day before you were born. If I remember, your birthday's November seventeenth or eighteenth. Eighteenth. 84. My yeah. mom died November 16th, 84. So that whole story oh, I told shit. was literally the weekend you were born, actually. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, I just I just remembered that that's when you were born. Wow. Yeah. That's a mind fuck right there. Yeah, totally. It was that weekend <laughs> when you came when you came came, came crawling out, crawling man. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was dealing with that. Jesus. But anyway, so uh, back to Berkeley. I met those guys like real quick. It was like the second week of school and um the two of those guys went to Berkeley together. From They lived in Kings Park, Long Island. I lived in Long Beach, Long Island, which is about a half hour south of where, where they grew up. And you, you guys I never had any, you know, a half hour of separation? You never had any interactions no, before? No. Wow. Long Island is huge, man. Long Island is just, just people from everywhere. And the same with Berkeley. Like, people from all over the world at Berkeley. So for three guys to, like, be all be from Long Island and connect and be into the same music was pretty pretty amazing. But I remember I was wearing a Talus t-shirt. That's Billy Sheehan's old band back then, before uh, before he joined the David Lee Roth band. Yeah, okay. So I, I was wearing a Talus shirt, and I was in one of the dr practice rooms drumming, and they could tell that I was like into like heavy stuff, and I was jamming on like Maiden tunes and Rush tunes. And uh, they came up to me, and they're like, man, you, you've heard of Talus? You know who Billy Sheehan is? And I was like, yeah. And then we started talking. And it's funny that it was Billy Sheehan and Talus that brought us together, and now I'm in... Two other bands with Billy. Yeah, with Billy now, Sheehan, yeah. years later, which is <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we immediately started talking, and we had common influences. You know, they were huge Rush fans. They were huge Maiden fans. And we just started jamming. And we were like total outcasts back then, because back then at Berkeley, it was nothing but jazz heads. And we were like the only kids that were like listening to, to that kind of stuff, Priest and Maiden and Metallica. And, and uh, yes, we, we started jamming. Uh, six hours a day, every single day, and just getting, you know, getting to know each other and started writing original music, and that was pretty much the origins of, of Dream Theater. That's super cool, man. So then, um, 
you guys formed Dream Theater there. How soon uh, after, you know, when you first meet in 85, are you guys, you know, cutting a record and doing all this? Are you drop, do you guys just leave Berkeley? We You're drop. like, fuck it. We, we, we got yep. what we need. Exactly. That's the thing from Berkeley. If, if, if you graduate Berkeley, you become a, a, a school teacher, a music teacher. <laughs> if you drop out, <laughs> you're, you're only there to meet other musicians, right? <laughs> yeah, you go there to meet musicians, drop out and become a rock star. So it was like mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. The, the hard thing was like, we all had to really convince our parents to let us go to Berkeley. Like I remember my, my mom before she passed away, she wanted me to go to a normal school and get a college degree so I could have something to fall back on. And you know, if she hadn't died in that plane crash and she had lived, I may not have gone to Berkeley. I don't know. So what it's would weird you have how been? How did you ever think about what you would have been if you weren't a fucking rock star? I mean, every, our, every all of our lives would be so completely different. Not only mine, but John Petrucci and John Myungs and my my wife's, and you know, it all like it was all a path that led us to 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 become who we became. Yeah. And if the my mom. If my mom had lived and I hadn't gone to Berkeley, I mean, all of our lives would be totally different. It's crazy. But anyway, so I finally had to, had to convince them, I want to go to music school. I want to go to music school. So I, I finally go to Berkeley. And then after a year there, then we have to come back to our families and say, well, now we're dropping out. You know, we, we just want to like form a band and just they play. They were thrilled, obviously. Oh, yeah. It was it was, uh, it was tough for our families to accept. And it, it when you think about it, it fucking took balls on our hands our behalf you know after oh yeah a year of just meeting to you know some guys at, at, at college and jamming you want to just drop out and pursue a career so it, it took balls but it showed how how like dedicated and devoted we were we really believed in ourselves we knew that there was some really special talent there and we believed in ourselves so yeah. I, i'm i'm personally happy that you did because i got i got to listen to some pretty fucking kick-ass music yeah. over the years yeah, it all worked out, but it's it took time because like uh, you know we didn't get our first record deal till like eighty eight, eighty nine. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics, and in turn, make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And uh, we okay. didn't really. Were you doing shows before that, or we were just playing Long I- the Long Island scene and doing demos on my little four track recorder. You know, just doing. And I love those four track recorders, man. Yeah, well, all the early recorders, all the early Dream Theater demos were all done on my little four track that I got for like a high school graduation present. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, and we got signed off of that. Actually, I became friends with uh, uh, the guys in a band called the Crumb Suckers. They were a New York hardcore band back in the late '80s. Crumb Suckers. That's not one I'm familiar with. Oh, dude, you gotta check them out. I, I'm they, going to after after they, we get off the off this uh, session here. The New York hardcore scene at that point was made up of like the Cro-Mags, Agnostic Front, uh, Ludacrist, um, Leeway, and the Crumb Suckers. And I was friends with the a lot of the only one that I knew out of all those that you just mentioned was Agnostic Front. Well, you know, the Cro-Mags? Cro-Mags were classic, too. I'm, I'm sure they were. I'm yeah, not the encyclopedia you are, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I became friends with the Crumb Suckers, and they were signed to Combat Records, which was like the same label, label that Megadeth was on at the time. Okay. And just from our friendship and those guys, like, hearing the shit that I was doing, they were like, they brought our demos to the label, and from there we got our first deal, but that wasn't until 88, 89, and even that first record we made went nowhere. We made an album called When Dreaming Day Unite that came and went, we were, had a different singer, so it wasn't until our second album, Images and Words, that we actually like broke. And at that point, we were already seven years into being together. So those wow. seven years were, you know, we were just grinding writing it out. and grinding and it out, right? Grinding it out. And people thought that we were like this overnight success with Images and Words. But at that point, it was already seven years of just being in the basement and writing all those tunes and just persevering and just being patient and patient and patient. So. It took a while before we got to that point. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. I I didn't actually realize that because uh, I obviously uh, first time I heard anything was from Images and Words. You guys had a music video out, and I remember yeah. seeing on MTV back in the day. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Uh, like you know, it was crazy that a band like ours got any MTV play though, because we were like writing these long songs. Oh, and, I know. And that was like in the era of grunge. Like when when Images and Words came out, that was when it was all about. Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, Alice in yeah. Chains. Three minutes, I mean, three minutes uh, bangers, yeah. Totally, and we were the total outcasts. Even bands like Queensryche and Maiden and Metallica were getting away from the longer songs, and they were even getting more streamlined. So we were coming out with these 10-minute songs with all the shredding playing and odd time signatures, and it was probably, you know, so shocking that we got any attention, but I think maybe we got attention because we were the only band doing something different. So yeah. I think maybe it helped us. It hurt us in a lot of ways, but it helped us in some ways too, just because yeah. we stood out. Yeah, it's, it's funny. That was, uh, that, uh, the video I'm drawing a blank now is for, was it for Overture? Is that what it was? No, what, it was probably Pull Me Under. Pull, pull Me, me under. under, that's what it was. It was definitely yeah. Pull Me Under. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, was, that, was, that was all over MTV. And it's like, what the fuck? It was like a cheesy little $500 video, dumb for nothing. I gotta it, say, everyone should go back and check out this video <laughs> to see what oh, Mike Portnoy oh. used to look like. It is well, fucking epic. <laughs> I, I look like my son Max, actually. Like That's no true, beard, actually. Yeah, you do. No beard, long black curly hair, playing without a, without a shirt, playing shirtless and stuff. Every, but, everyone yeah. was looking gorgeous. I'll, I'll say that. It was coming right yeah. out of that glam rock going into the, oh, into the grunge. It was, it was gorgeous. Oh, it was horrible. This <laughs> fucking, the 90s was so bad, actually. I look back, man, and it got worse and worse. By, by mid to late 90s, it was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> You guys, you guys came around like perfectly at the tail of that, so you didn't. Yeah, we you didn't did. have to, like you didn't have to be part of that horrible era. No, no, we just we just threw on makeup and and wore all black right away. Yeah, so. yeah totally. <laughs> oh man, so you touched. Uh, let, let's get off uh, of Dream Theater just for a second here. You, uh, you brought up your your son Max uh, following in your footsteps, doing the doing the whole thing. He's out torn right now. Um, yeah, he's a kick-ass yeah. drummer. I've I've listened to a lot of the shit and dude, he's fucking killing it. He's he's sick, man. He's he's you guys, doing. Do you guys shit. have drum offs? Is he better than you now? Is that what's going on? He is. That's fucking he's awesome. Dude, and you dude, want that? Totally. You want that? Totally. <laughs> he won. Uh, he won his first Modern Drummer Award last year. He won Best Up and Coming Drummer. Oh, that's 25, fucking cool. Exactly twenty five years after I won it uh, in Modern Drummer. So wow. Yeah, I'm so proud of him. And yeah, man, he could outplay me because he, he's got all the the speed and the dexterity of all the crazy shit that kids are doing now you know he does all the blast beats and all that crap i can't do that shit man and he's killing it he's got his it's band man's game. <laughs> totally yeah 
Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping he'll. I could retire soon. He could just join all my bands and take over for me. Oh, that that that, that seems that seems doable. Yeah. yeah. But he's got he's got his band Tala. They just signed with Earache, and uh, they're about to record their uh, debut album. They have an EP that's out, and they're just sick, sick. But he's into the he's into the like hardcore new metal shit, which is cool because he was in a band called Next to None when he was first starting out, which was kind of dream theater ish and he was just always being compared to me and you know like it, i think after a while he was like fuck this i want to do my own thing and he's really into the hardcore stuff like code orange and and uh knock loose and bands like that so that's Slip awesome Knock that he found his like he, he found his niche too that's that's, yeah, that's, that's a cool, cool thing and he's doing his thing so there's definitely uh no way you could compare what he's doing and what i do they're very very different worlds which is awesome yeah that's that's super cool i'm glad that he's you know he's doing his own thing and uh, having success there. How is uh, Melody doing? She's doing great. She's uh, she's living in New York City. Actually, she lives with John Petrucci's daughter. The two of them have an apartment together in Brooklyn. No way. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. So they stayed friends. They grew up together on on our tour buses, and they're still they're still living together now. And she's into music theater. She graduated from New York Film Academy, so she's doing like you know music theater and Broadway shows and singing and dancing and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, both of them are, are doing so good. I'm so proud of them. I mean, you knew them when they were, shit, when I was playing with you guys, they were kids. And oh, now yeah. they're in their 20s and out off and, you know, touring and living in New York. And Yeah, I want to say, I wanna say uh, Melody was just getting into high school at the time. Like, she, I'm yeah. pretty sure she was in junior high at the time. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's that's, nuts. That's man. wild. That's wild. Um, so anyway, back to Dream Theater and back to your drumming. Um, you've won, like... How many of those fucking modern drummer 30. awards? Jesus Christ, 30. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's actually, like, to be honest, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. It's flattering and everything. It's nice little fucking visual coming down the stairs, uh, you know, all lined up there. But to be honest, so you have it's lined like, up there, over the stairs. Is that what you're telling yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But, uh, you know, in another way, it's kind of like an albatross hanging around my neck. It kind of be kind of became like this expectation of me. Like, okay, you know, I would roll into these drum shows or meet other drummers, and they'd be like, oh, okay, here's the fucking modern drummer carrying thirty awards, blah blah blah. Like, you know, show us something, like impress us, improve, you know. And and after a while, I became like uh, almost uh, embarrassed by it. Like, I, I like I don't. I never set out to be this fucking award-winning drummer. I was just this yeah. fucking kid playing Kiss tunes and Ramones tunes, and somehow I got some attention and some acclaim from it. But really, I never wanted it to be about being this well-known drummer. I kind of was just a music fan, and and it's nice. It's great that I won all those awards and everything. But at, at the same time, like I don't want that to be the focus of what I do. What I do is I just like making music. I just like jam jamming with other people and having fun and. You know, doing all those kinds of things, touring with, with you guys and touring with Twisted Sister and all these other bands I've played with through the years. Like, that's what it's about for me. It's about just having these experiences and making music with other people. And, the, and the, the awards fun, yeah. are nice, but it's not like, I don't know, like, I, I'm not going to go out there and win any fucking drum offs. It's just not my thing, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, Max is already kicking your ass at those. So. Exactly. <laughs> Oh man! So speaking of, I know you don't want to go too much into these, obviously, because you just said it's not what you're all about. But um, you mentioned obviously you were a big Rush fan, and Neil Peart had uh, previously been the youngest to win a Modern Drummer thing, and then you came in. Were you the second youngest, or were, did you beat him and become the youngest to uh, that was, earn that award? 
That was for uh, uh, entering the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. Oh, it's for entering. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, so that was not. That's not like a specific award you get. That's like an induction, and you're in there forever. And Neil, Neil was one of the first people to be inducted when they started doing that in the '70s. It was guys like, like uh, you know, Keith Moon, John Bonham, Ringo Starr, Ginger Baker, all the legends of that era. Uh, and then Neil got inducted real early on. I think Neil was 37 when he was inducted. Okay. And then I got inducted in 2004. So I think I was like maybe a little older. I might've been 38 or something at that time. Okay. So I was the second youngest to be inducted. And, um, and up until last year, I'm, I'm the youngest guy in there, but Dave Grohl just got in uh, last year and Dave's a few years younger than me. So Dave's now the youngest guy in there, oh, but up okay. until... Up until a few years ago, I was the youngest guy, and I'm in there with all the, you know, all the legends like Buddy Rich, Gene Cooper, John Bonham, Keith Moon, and then little old me. So, you know, yeah, it was. It's quite. That's quite an honor to be like amongst those guys, you know, yeah. those legends. So, speaking of the of of being surrounded by other legends, you you don't hang your hat on those uh, those awards, but you're an incredible drummer. That's just kind of, that's just the way it is, and you know. You guys had an up and down career throughout Dream Theater, right? And you're, yeah, you're, 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 you know, one of the founders of it and one of the main writers, right? You guys are when you guys are writing, you know, what was that yeah. process like for in Dream Theater with uh, when it came to writing? What was the dynamic like between the guys? And when did you guys, uh, uh, you know, uh, get together and start doing? Well, you already covered right. that, but I mean, I, I what think was the right like. Right out of the gates, everybody kind of knew their personalities. And I, out of those guys, I was always like the most outgoing one. I was always the most vocal one. Um, so I think it became inevitable that I kind of became the quote-unquote de facto leader in the band. And I became like the spokesman that did most of the interviews and made all the connections with the different people in different bands and stuff like that. It's just the nature of my personality and the nature of those guys' personality being quieter, kind of more introverted people. Um but I guess that kind of established the balance of the writing process. I mean, usually the writing in Dream Theater was myself and John Petrucci being very, very much uh, the driving force. We, we, with Dream Theater, with me, it wasn't like a traditional drum and bass rhythm section. To me, it was more of a classic drum and guitar rhythm section, like the way like James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich have in Metallica, or the okay. way that like Dimebag and Vinnie Paul had in Pantera. You know, yeah. it was definitely drum and guitar driven with Dream Theater. So me and John kind of became the drivers, and as time went on, we became the producers. We, we took on the reins and produced all the albums, the two of us. And, you know, for, for my 25 years there, um, you know, we wrote together. I was always uh, one of the co-music writers, but also I wrote a lot of the lyrics in the band. And anytime I wrote lyrics, I wrote the vocal melodies and did a lot of singing in the band as well and co-producing the albums and I, I guess I just by nature of my personality took on a lot of the responsibilities and stuff like that in the band kind of like the way Lars does with Metallica Lars was always like a, a role model for me you know the way that he would deal with all the fan club stuff and the merch and you know all the special shows and special things like that that they would always do um so I think that was just you know kind of my nature I got all you. that time yeah yeah um and speaking of those dynamics and everything like that, ultimately we we all know now that it, it it came to a head and you guys parted ways, and that will actually take us into when you joined us and helped us out um, mm. on the Nightmare album and Cycle. I just get get into that real quickly. Uh, I want to say that 
this was not the first time that you had filled in for uh, a drummer that had passed away, right? Because you had, you had been, you jumped in with uh, Twisted Sister? Well, Twisted came after you guys. So I had, uh, when so, I started... So the, ours was the first, and then you did yours that. Yours was the first one with somebody that had passed. I mean, I had filled in with other bands. I'd filled in with, like, Fate's Warning and Overkill and a few different bands through the years I had done fill-in work. But your situation with you guys was the first time I was stepping into a situation with somebody that had passed. And, you know, as you know, and you guys have all spoken about so much through the years, I mean, it was it was a, a, a heavy situation to walk into. I, I, I really was feeling for you guys. I, I think I got the call from, uh, from Larry, I think, a few days after the funeral. And I know you guys at that point decided you were going to go ahead and make the record. And, and then I came in there. We were in the studio together, I don't know, a few weeks later at that point. So obviously the wounds and the emotions for you guys were obviously very very fresh and and i had to i came in like really respecting that and you know walking on eggshells to make sure a that you guys were emotionally cool but also b musically you know i didn't want to impose myself on what you guys were doing obviously that record was all about honoring jimmy and i wanted to make sure that that i honored that and i came in there and told you guys like mold me like i'm your clay i'll play exactly what jimmy did on the demos or if you want me to do my thing just say the word but like whatever you want i was there to to serve you guys yeah and that was what was so cool about it i remember very first meeting you uh was just outside the nam show at a yeah. at a dinner um and i my first impressions were obviously like okay this guy is awesome he's 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 willing to do whatever for us and everything and that's just so cool because we grew up listening to listening to your drumming over the years for so for so long and to meet someone and have them be that respectful and not like, you know, if, if I do this, I'm going to do it my way kind of thing, you know, no. you're very respectful. And that was super cool. We were really, really, really stoked to have you come in and, and help us out with that. And like you said, you were, you were very um, open about the fact that you'd do whatever Jimmy played yep. on the demo, if that's what we wanted, whatever we wanted. And then um, you mentioned that, uh, you, you know, you said mold, mold me to what you guys want. And I think we pretty much did because I think we, yeah. we berated you pretty hard a couple of times in, in the studio. I remember us being in the control room and, and I think one of your lines was, oh, you want me to uh, sneeze on two and fart on three or what? <laughs> <laughs> I, had been never, I had never been produced like that before because, you know, honestly, with Dream Theater, I was self-produced and I was always like, nobody was ever allowed to say anything about my drumming in dream theater. Like I did what I wanted and that was it. But with you guys, it was a much different situation. And I, I really wanted to respect what, what you were going through. I think perhaps maybe if Jimmy hadn't passed away and if like, maybe it was just like I was coming in and I was replacing somebody, then maybe I wouldn't be, have been that open about it. I might've been a little bit more, um, territorial but being that it was such a an emotional situation i i was totally willing and a, willing to do whatever you wanted if you wanted me to play less i'd play less you wanted me to play more i'd play more and i remember you guys like literally really like no the kick pattern is duh, 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 and you know and i would be going yeah. and i would literally have to sit there and do exactly what you guys wanted because it was what what, what jimmy had done on those demos yeah because i mean the album was done i mean that's the reason why we i mean at first we didn't even know if we were going to continue as a band and right. then the next step was okay we need to get this last piece of music of jimmy's out like he was he a huge 
huge component of the of the writing process of that. Some of the songs were all him. And we're like, okay, we need it. We we owe it to Jimmy to get this out. Who are we going to get to play the drums though? We can't use the demos because they were played on an electric kit. We need it. We need to do it justice. So we reached out to you, and that's when, you know, we thought about it, and we're like, you know, who's who who could possibly do this? Who who what kind of drummer out there could, has the chops that could pull off what we were going for? And your name came up in it, and you know, we all kind of went, yeah, let's see if he if if he'd be down to do it because. Uh, I'll bring you to a funny story. Like um, back in the van days, um, we were listening to uh, Train of Thought, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember "Honor Thy Father" starts out with that crazy drum drum fill, like right off yeah, the yeah. bat. And I remember all of us was go, looking looking around, and going, "What the fuck did I just hear?" And then we're like, <laughs> "How do we try?" And we listened to that just that fill over and over, and trying to <laughs> transcribe it in our heads. And then finally, Jimmy goes, "Ah, I got it." And he, and, he, and he, I remember he was sitting shotgun in the van, and he goes, he says, hit play again, and then he, and then he did it with his hands and feet, like on, <laughs> on the dashboard. <laughs> so, I, we, I, so we knew we were, we were, we were, we were fans, you know. And we're like, okay, this guy's a fucking incredible drummer. He's got the chops. Let's, let's see if he, if he's down to do it. Yeah, and and I was honored, honestly. I really was. Well, speaking of honor, I was honored that, to be asked because I, you know, I really respected you guys as a band, and I really respected Jimmy as a drummer. And it's funny, I could hear a lot of my style in Jimmy's style already. So it was really strange to come in and like learn a lot of his fills, which already sounded a bit like my fills to begin with. So it was like the whole thing was like coming coming full around circle. a full circle yeah. in a strange kind of way, and. Uh, I mean, for the most part, I, I just let you guys direct me when making the record. And, and it was, a you know, I really, I also really um, respected how, how much you actually, like, took me in, you know, because you, you guys could have been, you know, dicks and kind of, like, kept me at, at arm's length. But no, you guys were really cool to me and, and kind of made me feel at home and made me feel well, part I of the think it, I think it started with a mutual respect. I think that's what, that's what really kicked it off, you know? yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I, I get asked about that session and that album all the time. And it's, I have to say it was like, I'm kind of torn because on one hand it was like really sad and really emotional for you guys. And I could tell that you guys were hurting and missing your, your brother. And then on the other hand, um, here I am like in there and I, you know, I don't want to overstep my boundary. So, but on the other hand, I really enjoyed working with you guys. I really loved your camaraderie and the brotherhood that you guys had. So you know, it was kind of a bittersweet thing for me. On one hand, it was really sad. On the other hand, it was a, a great experience that I have fond memories of. And that actually takes me to the next part. Um, you're At the end of the sessions, I remember your parts were done. The drums were already laid down, and then we're starting to do our next thing. And uh, you were like, you know, I know you guys aren't thinking about touring right now, but if you ever do get the get out there, you just want to play a couple of shows, I can make myself available to you, and uh, I'd love the chance to play some of this stuff live with you. And yeah. we were like, oh, I mean, that's a cool idea. But again, at that time, it was touring was not in our thought. We were like, we're just getting out this last piece of, of music of Jimmy's, and we don't know what we're doing next. You know? right. um, but then eventually we did decide to uh, tour, as everyone knows now, and you came out with us. And uh, do you, I, I guess I'll just ask right off the bat, do you have any, like, stories i mean you you've been on on tour for years at this point with dream theater and everything like that and and then all of a sudden you're in with these with these young punks yeah. <laughs> out on the road you know well first thing i had to do was start getting in shape to keep up with you guys so you guys I remember that you, you you wanted to go shirtless again because you hadn't gone yeah. shirtless in years 
that was the girl. The, that was the goal because I hadn't played shirtless in years, and I remember the goal was I started working out with you guys and eating with you guys, like dieting with you guys. And I ended up losing like 30 pounds. And the goal was by the time we get to L.A., the L.A. show towards the end of that run, I, I have to be able to play shirtless. And sure enough, <laughs> I, I was. And I played shirtless at that show. And I was, you, you, mm-hmm. you were pretty jacked there for a minute, man. I saw I, we, we could see some abs going on there, man. I, I know. It was crazy, man. I was in the best shape of my life. I was like, I guess you guys were in your late 20s and I was in my early 40s. So I think I'm about 15 years older than you guys. So I was... You know, I had to keep up with you guys. I didn't want to look like the fat old man. Uh, so, I, yeah, you guys whipped me into shape, and, and I appreciated it. I actually ended up having a lot of fun, like, uh, you know, doing all that. But, yeah, I have so many great memories of that tour. Uh, you know, doing the whole Uproar tour with, with you guys and Disturbed and Stone Sour and Hell Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a great run. But I, I do remember, not to harp on the, the passings of Jimmy, but, like, that was your first time without him. And Hell Yeah was out there with Vinny without Dimebag. And Corey was out there with Stone Sour for the first time since Paul had passed. Yeah, so we were all, we were all out of, there. There was a lot of com- camaraderie and, and similar situations with all you guys kind of dealing with that. But anyway, the, the, the shows themselves were great. I absolutely loved playing with you guys. And, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, my music taste is so broad that, you know, after playing such technical stuff with dream theater for so many years and years and years it was great to just get up there and fucking you know have a good time and just play play metal tunes or yeah. you know however you would describe what you guys do it was a nice I change don't know. I, I let them describe it yeah <laughs> so yeah for me musically it was a, a lot of fun just to do something different and um and you know i, I I don't know if I have any specific stories. I remember. Well, let, actually, let, I remember. Let, let me uh, jog your memory on, on a couple one, a couple of them okay. here. Then, so I'll start with the very first show we played with you. Um, in we Canada. were yeah, in, in Montreal, heavy oh. Montreal. And we at this point now we now we do get massages, but none of us were out there getting massages. This was something that you brought in from your dream theater days. <laughs> And we're all in the in the camper getting ready, you know, warming up and whatever. And we look outside, and you're out there getting a massage. And we got like ten minutes to get on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember that. <laughs> Dude, it, was, it, it happened. And we uh, we looked we looked at our manager. Larry was out because it was our first show, and you know, we're all we're all nerves. You know, we're never nervous first going out on stage. This is the first time we're ever going to go out without Jimmy. And but, you're out yeah. there getting a massage, and Larry's looking. He's like. Does he know there's only 10 minutes to fucking go to stage? <laughs> That's the best time to get a massage, man. <laughs> totally. Roll straight on to the stage. Oh, dude. Yeah. I, well, I, the thing I remember from that show was afterwards going out with, with you guys and all the wives and girlfriends were there. Actually, I don't know if any of you guys were married yet, but you were with all of your wives-to-be. Yeah. And they were all out there for that show. And I remember we went out to a strip club afterwards. And yeah, I remember the strip being, clubs in Montreal are nice. I remember going out with you guys and just being so nervous because I, you know, be, being a sober guy, I kind of eliminated all that from my, my life. Yeah. And I remember going out with you guys that night and being like so uh, uh, scared, like, oh my God, am I going to slip? Am I going to slip? Oh my God. <laughs> Marlene's like, I'm on the phone, Marlene. She's like, get the fuck out of there. Yeah, what, are you, what are you doing there? That's <laughs> yeah, hilarious. These guys are like, oh, don't worry, all the girls are here. It's cool. They're just celebrating yeah. their first show and, you know, they're just blowing off some steam. Yeah. But I remember actually. Uh, and then there was many other strip clubs after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you're subscribed and leave us a five star review. If you want to listen to this show ad free, head over to drinkswithjohnny.com and become a premium member. You'll get to enjoy unreleased clips from your favorite guests 
discounts on merchandise in our shop, and access to our private Discord server where you can chat one-on-one with Johnny Christ himself. Awesome! So stay tuned, stay thirsty, and stay filthy as fuck. But I remember getting uh, Dan the Body's t- uh, tattoo on me in the back of your bus. Oh, that's uh, right. When we had uh, uh, our tattoo we artist out. We went out to, uh, I think we went to Indian food or something like that. And you guys, uh, you challenged Dan to, to eat a chili pepper, this one, this yeah. super, super chili pepper. And you guys offered him, I think, like 100 bucks each or whatever if he would eat it. And sure enough, he eats it. He puts it down. It took, it took him like 10 <laughs> minutes to get it down. But uh, then I was like, all right, I had to fucking double down. I was like, all right, if you eat a second one, I'll get a fucking tattoo of a chili pepper with your name on it. Uh, and sure enough, he did. <laughs> he fucking ate it. So I had to get a tattoo of a chili pepper with Dan the Body's name on it and had to get it at three in the morning in the back lounge of the bus. Was like, the bus uh, wasn't the bus moving? Yeah, we were going. It was like going like 70 miles an hour. It's like something straight out of fucking jackass that Steve-O would do or something like that. And sure oh, enough, like, that's fucking classic. Yeah. So another story that, I, that, that um, I'm always fond of and, you know, it's developed a good relationship is uh, you actually introduced us to your good friend Chris Jericho out right. here out on doing a show in Florida. Because um, yeah, he's like your like best friend at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Chris and I still to this day are like best buddies. But at the time, uh, yeah, I guess you guys didn't know him yet. And, and I know he was a fan of you guys. He loved um, City of Evil and, and we, the, the we White heard, House. We heard praise from him and stuff. You know, we knew, obviously we knew who he was. But, right. you know, um, yeah, we hadn't, we hadn't had the pleasure of actually meeting yet. So you uh, cultivated that. We were out, and, out there and we drove out before the show and right, went, right. went over to his house and you know he's he's got his nice house out on the lake and sure enough uh he's cooking up steaks for us and everything like that being super hospitable you know really nice guys as you know and uh he's got jet skis out there on the lake and we're all jet skiing and everyone's having a good time and then you motherfucker <laughs> think it's a good idea to try and splash matt while he's standing on the side of the side of the fucking lake yeah but didn't realize there's not brakes on a exactly. fucking jet ski. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. That was my first time ever on a jet ski. And I remember, I remember I was out on the lake on the jet ski, and I, I'm a fucking walking disaster area. I crash cars. I, I, I'm like, you can't put me You in, definitely in the, are not made for a jet ski. No, totally. <laughs> and I remember being out there on the lake and thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is fucking awesome. This is so much fun. Don't do anything stupid. I remember saying to myself, don't do anything stupid. And sure enough... <laughs> I start coming back to his house, and I see Matt on one of the jet skis right in front. And I, I had this idea that I would be able to come right up to him and kind of, like, step on the brakes and just, like, you know, spray him or something like that. I don't know what made me think I, I even There's knew no how to do fucking brakes. <laughs> well, I found that out because I was coming straight at him. I'm like, wait a second. Where is the fucking brake on this thing? And sure enough, there isn't any. And I fucking... Smashed the jet jet skis. Luckily, fucking didn't hit Matt. I think it- no, Matt jumped out of the way. Luckily, right, he, right. luckily Thank he's God. athletic enough because we had a show that night too. He, he would have been legless at the fucking show. <laughs> well, Jericho was joking that he could see the headlines already. Portnoy saves event sevenfold but kills singer. Yeah. <laughs> And I just couldn't day, believe that. Did you ever? And I saw. Yeah, his that, jet ski. that jet ski. You fucked it up. Did you ever pay him back for that? 
I, he wouldn't let me. I, I begged him to let me buy him a new one, and he refused to let me buy him a new one. So he can <laughs> hang this above my head for the rest of my oh, life. Oh, that's brilliant. And he still does, yeah. <laughs> but I thank God I, I didn't hurt anybody because that was fucking so stupid of me, man. I'm fucking so stupid. <laughs> hey, it, it's fun. We can laugh about it now, you know? Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> and then I remember that night, uh, M. Shadow stopping the show at some point to call out Chris for being on his phone texting. I remember oh, Chris yeah. was in front of house. <laughs> And then it was one of the moments, I, uh, like, in the show where we'd stop and you guys would get the circle pit going or whatever. And he was like, Jericho, put down your fucking phone. Like, the whole time Jericho's out there texting and we just, we could see him, his every yeah. move. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're in front of the house, you're, you're on display. Yeah. Um, yeah, the other thing that I noticed that, you know, your best friend, similar to you, has this whole fucking uh, library of music and that's i think that's where you guys like really fucking hit it off watching the two of you converse about music is, is oh, something yeah. to behold we we text every day pretty much just bullshitting about hey man okay what's your five favorite beatles songs that george wrote you know or what's what's uh what's your five favorite maiden songs that weren't on a live album you know whatever we just we're just like fucking music nerds oh totally texting each other with stupid shit like that <laughs> well that's fun though yeah for sure <laughs> So, ultimately, you know, we end up parting ways after all this fun on tour and everything like that. We're, we're having fun together. Um, as, as I re- I'll, I'll tell it the way I recall it. As I recall, we had, we had pretty much decided that this was always going to be an interim kind of uh, thing for you to come into event Sevenfold. Right. And, uh, you know, and at, some, at a certain point near the end there, um, I think we were at the end of an American tour about to go over to Europe. Um, you mentioned that you were thinking of leaving Dream Theater. Right. And we were like, oh, okay. Not thinking much of it. And then you were like, oh, but, you know, then you guys could have me for all, right. like, all time. And we are like, uh, okay, let's wrap our head around this. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that, like, if, you know, if you leave, it's not a guaranteed thing that you're going to be with us for all time, you know. Right. And also, we were like, we don't also want to look like the like the dicks that fucking split up Dream Theater, you know? Right. I get so, it. So, yeah. So, um, that was kind of our thought process. And we were like, always, we were still in our heads going, well, this thing's going to end here and we're going to have to move on, you know? Um, but why don't you tell it from uh, your perspective, how, how you were feeling, why the departure from Dream Theater, right. you know? I think, uh, like... I look at it like I think we were both what each other needed at that time. I think you guys needed to get back on your feet. Absolutely. And we couldn't have done it without you, obviously. You coming out and doing that, we, we wouldn't be still doing what we're doing right now without you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, it, I'm glad it worked out because, you know, the world needs you guys. <laughs> but the way, that's, the way I, that's the way I felt like. Like, I was there to help you guys. And you guys were, whether you knew it or not, you were there at a good time for me, too, because I was at... 25 years into dream theater at that point and I was fried and I was burnt and uh, you know I just needed a break and you know touring with you guys was very refreshing for me and it showed me you know that there's more out there than just the little dream theater bubble that I had been in for 25 years Mm -hmm. so you guys were really good for me at that point as well you kind of opened up my eyes to other things and I pretty much made the decision that uh, I wanted, I needed a break from those guys. I needed to be able to explore other things, whether it be with you guys or if it was, you know, not with you guys, with some, with something else. Yeah. Um, and I knew that. I knew that it wouldn't necessarily work out between you guys and me because I didn't know if you were ready to make a commitment. And, you know, and I knew that the whole Dream Theater thing sparked up so much drama at the time with 
all the blabbermouth headlines. Anytime I did an interview, it became like fucking yeah, headlines. It was, it was everything. It was horrible. And believe me, I never wanted that. And I'm sure for you guys, that became a, a huge distraction. You know, I've always been a social media guy. So like, you know, that's always just the way I've been. And I know you guys are a little bit more, you know, you keep keep it keep that yeah, shit. Well, yeah, and until, until very recently, I didn't have any social media until I was going to start doing this show, and I was like, "Well, I got I guess I got to get it." But back then, you guys weren't. So, uh, you know, I saw I, I could tell the way it was going down. It was just like you guys wanted to stay focused on Jimmy's legacy and whatever you were going to do next. Yeah, exactly. And I get the fact that the timing wasn't right, but for me, it didn't matter. I needed if it wasn't going to be with you guys, I needed to do other things with other people. That was just what I needed in my life and my career. And Dream Theater was on my back to make uh, commitments to a timetable, and you know, because they needed to, they wanted to go on, mm-hmm. and I just wasn't ready to make those commitments. So anyway, the, you know, I what happened happened, and at that point, uh, I finished out the year with you guys, yep. and then at, at that point, you guys moved on, and I went on to do what I've been doing ever since. Now it's been over nine years, and I've I've got like. I don't know, dozens of different bands and projects. I've put out literally 40 albums uh, since that time. Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, like, the, if I'm you fuck, look at, we're like... We're fucking slackers over here. I think we, I, I don't <laughs> even think we've put out, like, fucking three records. Everyone's still asking for the for the next record right, right. now. You, well, see, you are dream- putting out fucking 40. Jesus. But even Dream Theater, and I'm, I'm not saying this to, sl- to slack them, but even they have only put out four albums since I've been gone. Um, and you know, like, I think I just needed more than that. I needed to be able to play with metal. Yeah. (laughs) And then I went and, you know, played with twisted after you guys, after they had a similar situation with AJ passing. So, uh, you know, I, after the experience I had with you guys walking in with twisted was a, a very similar thing as well. You know, those guys were still hurting. They wanted to honor his legacy. So I knew how to handle that. And I also did gigs with, Stone Sour and all these other bands, Metal Allegiance and, uh, you know, all the bands I put together, Winery Dogs, Sons of Apollo, Flying Colors, you know, so it's been a, an incredible ride and I, I wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, I have, I have this tattoo here, it says no regrets and everything happens for a reason, you know, and yeah. whether or not it worked out with you guys and whether or not it worked out with the Dream Theater situation, everything happens for a reason and I couldn't be happier with the path I've been on since that experience with you guys yeah. and i'm grateful for the experience i had with you guys but i'm also grateful for you know the way it worked out that you guys went on to do your thing and you you've played with two great drummers now and brooks is amazing he's perfect for you guys and i've gone on to do all the different things i do so you know yeah, i think, every, I think it, everybody's it happy everyone's happy absolutely yeah it was it was i remember it being a little dicey for us there for a second at the end you know um just yeah. you know there was the day when uh you mentioned you you wanted you're like hey if you guys want I'd love to stay on here and we're like uh, okay well let's think about this and then the next right. day I believe the next morning you were like hey I quit Dream Theater we're like uh what <laughs> <laughs> but I was gonna do what I was gonna do yeah no you were gonna do it either way but we but on our end we were like whoa we're gonna look like the assholes that pr- let's split right. up Dream Theater <laughs> right uh, I get it I do it was just uh, you know it's tough times. Yeah, but, yeah, but again, you know, you helped us out. We had a we had a lot of great times on that on that fucking tour that that cycle. Absolutely. That was a, that was that was a real blast for us. We finished up in England, as you know. I think it was like our last. We were doing those. You remember what the name of that club was? It was a, it was uh, a club. That, it, uh, it was a little. It was a smaller club, and we did it multiple nights. The Ham, Hammersmith Apollo. It used to be the Hammersmith Odeon, but now it's the Apollo. We did two nights there for Halloween. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, because yeah. we dressed up. And you know, it's funny. 
See, again, this is this. You're, you're sober, so you remember all this shit. I don't remember <laughs> what the fuck the name of it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember every gig. I remember uh, going to the USO with you guys. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a, that was a great time. Stuff, yeah, that was unbelievable. To this day, still one of the coolest career highlights I've had. That was an amazing experience. You and I were bunking up in uh, in Saddam Hussein's uh, yeah. palace there. Yeah, crazy. Like in his palace, and some of the shit we saw was insane, man. Oh yeah. A, experience yeah i mean we're, when you're going around walking around in there and you're uh, and and you see it I, you actually had a classic line when we were out there uh, like uh, one of the places had been bombed out and you're like who did this and like <laughs> we did motherfucker <laughs> that's why we're out here <laughs> Uh, it was fucking, that was a classic line but no that was a great that was a great experience for me too man i mean I mean, we didn't we didn't sleep much, you know. Traveling, yeah. you, you know, um, anyone who's done a USO tour or anything like that would know you, you don't know when you're going to take off to the next place because they can't give you schedules. It, it'd be dangerous and everything like that. So you just you're just on on alert at all times, and then you go and you play for uh, these awesome these awesome people, these soldiers. You know, it's it's not about whether they should be there or not or anything like that. They're there, so let's go out there and do something something cool for them. And uh, they're just most gracious people. And then we, we would stay up, um, you know, all night with them, uh, signing and chatting and everything like that, taking yep. pictures. And it was just a really cool experience for, for all of us, I think. And it's the only time you're ever going to hear an announcement before the show. Please remove your guns before entering the mosh pit. <laughs> that's I hope that's the only time they, they have to make that announcement. <laughs> <laughs> You don't hear that often at a gig. Yeah. Well, speaking of speaking of weird shit that happened out there too, is uh, actually on our way back, our flight into L.A. You weren't on this flight actually because you we 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 parted and dropped you off in New York. Um, but on the way back from L.A., we were we have been on this long trip and everything like that. Where we just ready to unwind. And I remember the, the plane went out over the ocean, and we're like, wait a minute, that's a, that's a little weird. Why are we going so far out in the ocean? The, 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 the airport's back this way. And then we wow. and they came okay. up, and then, we, and then as we're landing, we see all these fire trucks and ambulances ready because something, wow. something went wrong with our brakes up in the, up in the sky. And we were oh, about wow. to drop down, and like they they didn't know if we were going to make it. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Yeah, that was, that was that was a wild that was a wild ride. Oh, yeah. that was actually when you uh, cut your beard. Do you remember That's with the right. cigar cutter? That's right. I I, <laughs> I think I cut it that, at the end of that run. Yeah, at the end of that run, you you had Jason Barry take That's a cigar right. cutter. And That's right, and, tri- and trim it right and there in the airport. Did Jason keep it? Did I give it to him? I think he might. He might have yeah, kept probably, it. He probably does. I'll have to ask him. But yeah, yeah. I think he might have that. Ah, that's great. <laughs> we got How's that. On, doing, we got man? that on video too. Oh, dude, Jason's doing great. He's actually out with Disturbed right now. Really, right on, man. So yeah. um, I think that that'll uh, just about do it. Um, yeah. But uh, I want to want to give you a chance to uh, let it, let the listeners at home know. Um, where can we find more of Mike Portnoy? I mean, you mentioned all the bands that you're in right now, so that there's a lot to take in right there. So, you know, they're not all going to get it over this listen right now. So, yeah. where can they go to find, you know, Winery Dogs and all these and all these awesome projects that you got going? Uh, just my social media, you know, uh, Mike Portnoy. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm all over social media every day. I mean, the stuff I got going now. I have a new album with Flying Colors, which is my band with Steve Morris. What's that? Uh, what's that kind of? Uh, what's that project like? That's like more like poppy alternative. It's kind of like Muse and Radiohead 
meets you know the Beatles and yes you know okay that sounds, uh, that sounds cool yeah and then I got Sons of Apollo which is my band with uh, Billy Sheehan and Bumblefoot and Derek Sherinian and Jeff Scott Soto and that's more like in the vein of like Van Halen and Deep Purple and Rainbow Rush uh, cool. so we have a new album coming out in January with that and then also um, what else do I have I have uh, the Winery Dogs with my band with, with Richie Cotson and Billy Sheehan um, I'm just finishing up a new album with Transatlantic, which is my prog band, you know, doing like 50 minute songs and shit like that. So Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. So there's a little bit of everything. And, you know, I still do Metal Allegiance, which is my thing where I get to jam, jam and hang out with all my, my thrash buddies, the guys from Testament, Negadeth and Anthrax and Slayer and all those guys. So yeah, that's cool. I get, to have, I get to have fun in all these different playgrounds and do all these different things since it's awesome. That's cool. So everyone go check out Mike Portnoy on uh, all your social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Um, I guess that'll just about do it, man. Thanks for thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm so I'm, I'm glad I could uh, break your Skype, Jerry. I, I'm bummed I couldn't be there to hang in person, but yeah. Yeah, next time through we'll hook up for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. We'll 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 yeah. have to make a we'll we'll make another episode of this. There's a lot we could still get into for yes. sure. That'll wrap up this episode of Drinks with Johnny. Thanks for listening, and please hit the subscribe button, write a review, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to run over to drinkswithjohnny.com for all things Drinks with Johnny. We got some merch over there, so go grab a glass, grab a shirt, support the show. Sign up with your email on the site to get news on upcoming shows and more, as I'm going to release new items soon on the site. So be on the lookout for that. And on the next episode of Drinks with Johnny, famed for his White Claw video on YouTube, comedian Trevor Wallace stops by. So don't miss that one. It's going to be a lot of fun. And as always, till next time, cheers. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast